Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. your field, you should be able to explain it in a fairly concise way. And the starting point for the whole tradition of Musar within the Jewish world, you can approach it in one of two ways, and we'll bring them together. But if you start from human life as you've experienced it, you know that you're living for something. In other words, you have certain kinds of goals that are very important to you that you want to pursue in your life. For some people, it's a certain kind of economic level and a certain kind of comfort that comes with that. For some people, it's a close-knit, happy family. For some people, it's happiness itself. I mean, people are living, we are all living, holding in mind some priority, and then we're aligning everything else as best we can toward that priority, and we're evaluating, and if it doesn't work so well, we're changing it. But we're working towards something. One of the very amazing gifts we get from the Jewish tradition is a direct teaching, very succinct teaching, as to what the highest possibility of that is. Which is not to say any of those other things are not good and valid, but you can start to ask, well, maybe happiness is higher than material prosperity. Well, maybe what's higher than happiness? You know, Maybe joy is happier. I've written about that, that there's a quality of joy that is actually a higher than... And so what the Torah tells us really clearly is that a human life is meant to be devoted towards holiness. In the book of Leviticus, we read in many different ways statements that say, you shall be holy. And the most often quoted is the one that says, kedoshim tihiyu, you shall be holy. And if you think about it, it is meant to articulate the highest possibility of what a human being can be. Because our material nature is not our highest possibility because we share our material nature. I mean, I think the degree of our DNA that we share with chimpanzees is like in the high 90s, you know? We're really not much different from chimpanzees or other primates. Our material and then you could actually parse it out. And then what the Torah is saying is that the spiritual possibility in a human being is the highest possibility of our humanness because it is uniquely human. And that isn't something that necessarily came across to people who have been exposed to the Jewish world in the last 50 or 60 years, that really the ultimate purpose of life, not Judaism itself, but the Torah is giving us information about life, is that to become holy is the highest possibility, the highest potential we have. And we shouldn't lose sight of it. And we shouldn't put anything else ahead of it. What really gets the Musar tradition going 
is the fact that also from within the Torah, you learn, we learn, that we already are holy. Because that verse, you shall be holy, kadoshim tihiu, that's only half a verse. The other half of the verse says, kadoshim tihiu ki kadosh ani adonai elohecha, that you shall be holy because I, your God, am holy. Now, whose image and likeness are we already made in? And if you say God, you'd be right. But if you said God's physical form, you'd be very wrong. How are we in the image and likeness of God? And it's in our spiritual nature, not in our physical nature. And therefore, we're caught with a really interesting paradox. The paradox is, how do you become what you already are? You already are a holy soul. That's a very strong Jewish affirmation that shows up in many different ways in terms of Jewish law, in terms of treatment of the dead, in terms of treatment of the infirm, etc., etc. There's a very strong fundamental precept that each of us is the embodiment of a holy soul. Then in the dynamic aspect of life, we're commanded to make ourselves holy. So how do you become what you already are? And this really exercised the Musar teachers for centuries. They kept producing books through the 11th century, 12th century, 13th century, 14th century, 15th century, working out this dynamic. And what they came to conclude, and I'll talk a bit about more of that this afternoon later, is that there are different dimensions to the soul. And only a certain dimension of the soul is already radiant and pure. And that's the dimension called the neshama. And the neshama is said to be hewn from the throne of glory, God's throne of glory, and the neshama is pure, not should be pure, will be pure. In the daily liturgy, there is a line that says, Elohai neshama shanatata bitahorahi. My God, the neshama that you put in me is pure. Is pure. It's an incredible contemplation or meditation or reality test to internalize. And that's a lot of what Cantor Feller was giving us with the chance as Musser technique to internalize, not just to have it as an intellectual idea, but actually to experience your life and to see other people around you as having this radiant, pure core. But there are other dimensions of the soul as well two that are particularly important in Musa practice. One is called the Ruach and one is called the Nefesh. The focus really goes on the Nefesh because the Nefesh dimension of the soul is the part of us that is more accessible and more familiar from everyday life. It's our character. It's our personality. It's our emotions and our values. It's the everyday you and me. This Neshama is eternal. It's like the slow, deep throb of a human being. And then there's the kind of city chaos, which all takes place at the nefesh level. And the, there is a ruach too, but I'm going to not talk much about it because it's not that relevant in this shorter time. Because it's the dynamic between the neshama and the nefesh that works out the paradox. You already are a holy soul at the core, and around that holy soul, just speaking metaphorically, there is a kind of atmosphere. It's like the atmosphere around the sun or the atmosphere around a star. And the condition of that which surrounds this holy soul determines how much of the light of the soul actually gets through into your life and through you into the world.
And where the Musser teachers came to focus, as I said, it took about 900 years to work this out, was that in our inner life, every single one of us has the full range of traits of the nefesh soul. Everybody here has anger. Everybody here has patience. Everybody here also has impatience. Everybody has generosity. Everybody has miserliness. Everybody has kindness. Everybody has cruelty. These are all the features of our inner life. People worry, people trust, and we all have all of them. And those qualities themselves are neither good nor bad. This is a very specific Jewish view of the inner life. You can't say, from the standpoint of Musa, you can't say anger is bad. Anger has its role. Anger is a very powerful motivator to recognize injustice in the world and be motivated to do something about it. There, you may remember there was that young uh, Pakistani girl, Malala, who was shot by the Taliban. Well, she won the Nobel Peace Prize, but she shared it that year, which is like, don't ever share anything with Malala. You'll like lose the PR battle because no one knows who won the Nobel Peace Prize with Malala. But there's this man who made his life's work the freeing of child slaves. He was an opponent of child slavery, and that was when he got the uh, prize with her. And he did a TED Talk once, and he said, its title was, Everything I've Done, I've Done from Anger. Because he was so motivated by child slavery, that he didn't go in and hit somebody. He didn't react. That anger was like a giant fuel tank that fueled his activities. Anger, you can't say, is bad. Imagine that you, someone's looking at a situation of complete injustice neutrally, emotionally untouched. That can't be spiritually elevated. That can't be good. On the other hand, we can't also say envy is bad. What's the positive side of envy? Motivation. Yeah, envy is a motivator. Now, if envy goes too far, it eats you out. It eats you inside. And it says in the book of Proverbs, envy rots the bones, which is a description of a feeling, the experience of being eaten alive. But it's a motivator. And it says in the Talmud, that the envy of the scholars increases wisdom. Because someone looks at somebody else's book sales and says, that guy got done. I should be, you know, and then gets motivated and starts, goes back on the book tour. Every one of the qualities, no matter which one you think of, could be positive or could be negative. You can do harm with generosity. You can do a lot of harm. You can be an enabler. You can spoil a child. You can do all kinds of harm with something as positive as generosity, and so on. So the Muslim teachers came to the conclusion, we all have all the inner traits, but what distinguishes one person from another is not who has a trait or who doesn't. And you don't even try and say, I'm going to get rid of this trait or I'm going to... It's the measure of the trait creates the spiritual condition. Too much envy. In a sense, too little envy. Too much anger. Too little anger. Too much patience. Because that's true, too. You can be too patient, which means you're procrastinating, you're inactive. And too little patience, we're all very familiar with that. And so they recognized, and the word that's used in Hebrew to describe or name all these qualities of the nefesh soul, the singular is midah and the plural is midot. 
So anger is a middah, envy is a middah, laziness is a middah. That's the category. The word middah literally means measure. It literally means measure. So it's a very interesting view of the inner life because it gives us our individuality. I heard, who was it? Margaret Mead said, you know what? Everybody's unique, just like everybody else. And, but we are unique. And just footnote, parentheses, this is one of the things I love and have and caught me uh, to get me going on the Musar uh, exploration was the fact most people experience the Jewish world as a world of collective, the things we all do together. And not much room for being the unique individual or getting a pathway of guidance for each of us in our unique individuality. And that's exactly what Musar is because it acknowledges we all have anger, but one person may be at this end of the spectrum and one person at that end of the spectrum and everybody else somewhere in between and that's just our reality. Some people respond to every situation they face by getting angry. Some people, it's really hard to get them worked up. That individuality became central to recognizing that the light of the neshama, the inherent holiness of a human being, either shines through or does not shine through. It's impeded or it's permitted by the condition of each of those middot at the level of nefesh. And Rambam, who Rabbi Shmuley mentioned, that's Maimonides, he actually describes this. He says, each one of the inner traits, which is tending towards one extreme or the other, drops a curtain or a veil over the light of the neshama. And that's just for each one. So you can imagine the more traits that a person has which are tending towards the extreme, you know, like an arrogant miser who's impatient. <laughs> That's exactly how we're configured. Curtain, curtain, curtain. The light is more and more and more hidden. Now the light is always there. And it's shining as bright as the sun on a cloudy day. Just because it's cloudy doesn't mean the sun isn't shining. The work of Musar focuses on coming to awareness of which traits in your life you personally already are tending towards one extreme or the other on certain traits, because on certain traits you're going to be somewhere in the middle and that's just fine, but there are certain traits where you have a pattern, everybody does, of going too much easily without provocation to the level of envy to the level of judgment of other people, to, to the place of not telling the truth. Not because it's the circumstantial thing, but because it's a habit, because it's an ingrained way of being, almost independent of the circumstances, tendency to go this way or the other extreme, and it doesn't matter which. Either extreme is that kind of spiritual challenge, spiritual obstacle that composes what I call your spiritual curriculum. Becoming holy means doing the work of rectifying all the inner traits that are tending towards one extreme or the other. And the curriculum is not something that your Musa teacher assigns. You've already got your curriculum. You've had it for decades. And you've been tripping over it. Because where do you see that certain things as how you are show up as creating the obstacles to 
moving forward in your life, in relationships, in work, in education, in happiness, generally the things that we're tripping over are not external circumstances. They are the reality that we have inside as who you are is what you bring to the situation. It's not that the long lineup makes you impatient. You are impatient. Therefore, it doesn't require a long lineup to make you impatient. You will be impatient regardless of the length of the lineup because there could be nobody in front of you in Starbucks, but the barista can make you impatient. You know, it's the driver in front of you who's driving the speed limit makes you crazy. They're not going slow. They're actually doing the limit. That's enough to make you crazy if you're impatient. To recognize the difference between the objective circumstance, yes, I'm waiting, and the emotional reaction, I'm going crazy, those are not the same things. Who we are is announcing to us this spiritual curriculum. So the first step in the work of Musar is to become very aware of who you are, as you are right now, not with judgment, but with curiosity, because every single one of us has this curriculum. It's the pathway of our spiritual growth. So it's not a bad thing to have it. It's like saying, you know, I'm standing on the floor. I want to get up there. I have, to, I have to climb a ladder. You don't curse the ladder. And that's the way it is with spiritual elevation, too. Working on each of these inner traits is like a rung of the ladder. And as the impatient person becomes patient through practice, as the untruthful person becomes truthful, and of course, it could go the other way, too. There's such a thing as being too truthful. There's many circumstances in Jewish tradition where you're told that it is the proper thing to do is to tell a lie. Um, truth is not meant to be absolute. So there's somebody for whom truth isn't absolute. That person should be moving the other way on the spectrum to learn judgment and discretion. And so on through all the traits. This is actually the basic paradigm of what Musar has to offer because it gives us a sense of working with our life exactly as it is at this moment. Who you are, the way you're configured, your inner calibration is your starting point. So you're in a Musa group and someone gets into a long story of why they're angry. Pretty soon the facilitator of that group is going to cut them off because the issue is not why you're angry. The whole narrative of how you got here and blaming your parents and all this and how isn't really important. But important, very important, I do have an anger issue. Okay, that's our starting point. I do have an envy issue. I do have a judgment of other people issue. I do have, and, it, and the amazing thing is that each of us has our own curriculum. And so the first step of Musar is just to become aware of what's true. You know, and I find from my own experience that having a partner in life is a very, very good way of finding out what's on your <laughs> spiritual curriculum because if you've been married or have a committed partner for many years, They've actually been reminding you of your curriculum very insistently. <laughs> and it's an interesting shift of paradigm, right? Because you thought it was nagging. No, what they're saying, if you have ears to hear, is, honey, this is on your spiritual curriculum. And they're probably right. <laughs> they're probably right. Now, you know, not, no one's necessarily perfect, but... That seems to be their role in life from a certain perspective, <laughs> is to make us aware of what is on our spiritual curriculum. Once you become aware of what that is, and you know, and uh, you know, again, time is very short, so I can't give you all the examples of how I learned how various traits of mine 
were on my spiritual curriculum, but just take it from me that I learned that. Because <laughs> life is your teacher. Life, life is showing you. And if you pay attention to it, you know, impatience is a good example because if you get this paradigm and you realize, okay, whether, if I have to wait, if I'm held up, whether I'm impatient or not is my business. Being held up may be an objective fact, but how I wait, how I held up, that's up to me. I can make a choice at that moment in many kinds of ways to decide or even be trained to respond to those situations differently. If you have in mind, ah, it's on my curriculum, I'm working on that, then you are taking responsibility for who you are, and you have the possibility of changing, and in that change comes the freeing up of this holy light that is your gift, not only for you, it is your gift into the world. It's like you've been given a, a gem or a gift that you're supposed to put into the, into the collective pot, and you, you haven't done it yet. You've got to do that, and so I describe Musar as working on yourself, but not for the sake of yourself. It is not self-help in the traditional sense that this is, this is dedicated to me. It is dedicated to my purpose. My purpose involves the rest of the world as well. If you don't accept it as a curriculum, you don't do the work, all you do is blame other people. It's not that I'm impatient. It's you're too slow. You're too slow, and you're too slow, and everybody I meet is too slow, and day in and day out, I meet these slow, stupid people who don't know how to... Day after day, this is my experience of human relations, you know? And it is, it, there's a lot of blame that goes on, because if it's not about me, it must be about somebody. Like, somebody's at fault. And so this becomes a reality, a, a deeper connection to the reality of separating out the objective reality, the exact, objective facts, from my working with them in order to elevate myself spiritually to fulfill the highest potential of what a human being has, is, and not just on my own account. So that's the basic Musser paradigm. The very important piece of detail that I haven't given, but it's, not, it's too complex for this context, is the processes of working on oneself, which is not seen to be an intellectual process. It do, it's not about gathering information. Just because you know you're arrogant and you come to a realization, oh my God, I'm arrogant. I never, I always thought I was humble. Now I learn I'm arrogant. That doesn't make you humble. The information intellectually does not make you, the fact that you come to the realization, you know what, I am tight-fisted, doesn't make you open-handed. There has to be another step. And Rabbi Elia Lopian, who was a great Musser teacher who died in 1970, he said, Musar is making the heart understand what the mind knows. This is a very Jewish aspect of spiritual practice because the starting point is the mind. The starting point is an ideal. I should be more generous. I could be more humble. I could be more patient or more impatient, whatever it may be. Recognition comes. Then the practice comes into play because it's got to get out of your head and into your heart. It's got to be Im embedded in you. This is what you were saying so clearly. In the, and that's why we chant in Musar. It's not just to get into a la-la-la-la mood. <laughs> and that's why there are words to the chants, and the words are meaningful, 
because we're directing this energy which comes through melody and emotion and repetition. These are all, these are all energies. They're not intellectual ideas. And those energies imprint in us. The Muslim teachers say each episode of practice leaves a trace on the soul. And those traces accumulate over time. And then in a moment, a certain point down the road, you come to a situation which is very typical for you to respond like this, and boom, up from your depths comes another option to choose another way of being in that moment. Again, Shmuley was talking about that brief moment of reflection between the stimulus and the response. That is hugely important, hugely important, because that's the moment of free will. And what defines human beings differently from animals is we have free will. And that's where it takes place. That's called, in the Muslim religion, that's the Bechira point. Bechira means free will, and there's a point. And my Muslim teacher, Rabbi Peir, talks about opening the space between the match and the fuse. So that as you're in situations which provoke you, you also have a very spacious consciousness in which to make choice. And then you become much more masterful in your life, in your relationships, in your responses. And at the spiritual level, you start to glow. You start to have that supernal light that is our inheritance innately starts to become more accessible into this world. I think this world needs every one of our lights burning brightly these days. I think it's a world in which uh, Shmuley said he didn't want to talk about the world situation. I only want to talk about the world situation <laughs> because it seems to me, in terms of even my work of promoting these, you know, practicing the ideals of Jewish values, a lot of what's going on in the outside world is inimical to Jewish values. We stand for truth, this is untruth. We stand for compassion, this is uncompassionate world. We stand for chesed and loving kindness. There's a lot of cruelty and hatred being propagated. So we become even more motivated, I think, to stick, the, stick with the plan. We've been working for 3,500 years with these as our ideals. I think in the moments of crisis, we have to redouble our efforts and say, yes, these are our ideals. And then we are committed to them. And if we're committed to them, we have to start with ourselves. We don't stop with ourselves. But we have to start with ourselves. You can't want other people to do kindness, you know? You can, but it's not really valid unless you do kindness. You want the world to be compassionate, guess where you have to start? It's an obligation, because that's what you've been given as a human being. That's our primary tool, and our primary reality is the single individual soul we are. And we work outwards from the center. And so the, the, Musar, the real focus of Musar is working on your midot. Step by step, increment by increment, little by little. It's a very, it's a very patient process. And one of the Musar teachers who Shmuley mentioned, Rabbi Simcha Zissel Ziv, who died in the 1890s, he said, it's the work of a lifetime. And that's why you were given a lifetime. If we could do it overnight, we don't need a lifetime. We have the appropriate length of time to do a lot of work that, for which we have the capacity to make change. That is an introduction to Musar. Hi, 
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.